presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is physician assistant Lisa D'Andre Linnell. The Surgeon General serves as America's chief health educator and focuses the nation's attention on important public health issues. Dr. Regina Benjamin is the 18th U.S. Surgeon General. As the Surgeon General, she provides the public with the best scientific information available on how to improve their health and the health of the nation. Dr. Benjamin also oversees the Operation Command of the 6,500 uniformed health officers who serve in locations around the world to promote, protect, and advance the health of the nation of the American people. With me today is the Assistant Surgeon General of the United States, Chief Health Service Officer in the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps, and Physician Assistant, Rear Admiral Michael Milner. And we're discussing the Surgeon General's vision for a healthy and fit nation and the Surgeon General's Family Health History Initiative. Hi, Rear Admiral. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be with your audience again. This is a great opportunity for us to highlight some wonderful activities going on in our department with our new Surgeon General. Thank you for this opportunity. Well, it's our pleasure. Why don't you start by giving us a brief introduction of the recently appointed Dr. Regina Benjamin? Well, as you stated in your opening comments, Lisa, the Surgeon General serves as America's doctor. She serves as our chief health educator. As you also indicated, she serves as our our operational commander for the Commission Corps of the United States Public Health Service, which is one of the seven uniformed services of our nation. In addition to her role of promoting, protecting, and advancing the health and safety of our nation, she really has an opportunity to work across our department with senior leaders in both the science and medicine fields to make sure that the American people have the best science and evidence-based medical practice that's available to us. And she serves to help uh, educate the American people as well as our provider population about the advances in science and what they mean and tries to interpret those things in a way that any family doc does for their patients, just like we do as PAs. We try to interpret the research and the evidence and make sure that our patients understand how they can work to improve their own health and the health of their family and their community. She was recently appointed, and she brings many new things to the Office of the Surgeon General. One of them is something she's done recently with First Lady Michelle Obama, the Initiative on Childhood Obesity, the Surgeon General's vision for a healthy and fit nation. What do healthcare professionals need to know about this initiative? Tell us about it. It's a wonderful coalition of all the different components of our federal government and building on public and private partnerships to address the issue of childhood obesity. And uh, it's exciting to see her working with the First Lady in this way, raising the awareness of the American people about this epidemic. We know that if you just look around, you can see that Americans are heavier than they used to be. You can pull out your third grade uh, photograph your third grade class and see that, you know, at that time, at least in my age group, when you look back, the heavier kids tended to stick out a little bit. But if you look around today and you pull out a classroom picture from today, everybody looks the same, but we all look heavier than we did before. And that's, you know, a combination of things uh, that have occurred in our country in terms of our own uh, willingness to be physically active and some changes in policies around school, physical activity and nutrition 
in school. And so it's exciting that our Surgeon General has uh, partnered with the First Lady to raise the consciousness of the American people about this issue. You know, as providers, we see patients and we work with patients and try to help our families understand the things that they can do. And so this Healthy Fit Nation initiative is really one that draws attention to the things that parents can do, that communities can do, that schools can do, and that the employers and and places where we work and things that the employers can do to help reduce the incidence of obesity in our country, ultimately leading to a more healthy and fit life for all Americans. Well, let's break down some of those. First, let's talk about sedentary lifestyle. This is a problem for adolescents and adults. How do we change behaviors to include physical activity as a part of everyone's daily life? Well, it's a good question. And, you know, I think, you know, the activities sort of begin at home. I know for myself, when I drive to a shopping mall, I try to find the farthest parking spot so that I have an opportunity to walk more. I try to take the steps more often in my office and, you know, use the elevator less frequently. Parents can do the same thing, walking with their children, doing things after school and on the weekends that doesn't involve uh, sitting in front of a computer or a computer game or television screen. All those things that cause you to be up and about moving are all activities that can increase your physical activity. You know, finding those fun things to do with your kids, finding the ways to make your parks safer as community members, those are all exciting ways to reduce the incidence of obesity, improve uh, physical fitness. Well, you mentioned PE in schools. There are many schools where there isn't any physical education, and there are many states that also don't require that in school. Is there a plan for that to change? Well, yes, and some of the plans, you know, a lot of communities across the country have already initiated policies to restore physical fitness and physical activities in schools. Here in New England, as you know, I'm based uh, physically in Boston, Some of our schools, and I've met with our school superintendents a number of occasions, one good example is the Cambridge School System, which uses ballroom dancing as a way to get kids uh, physically active, and it's exciting that their classes are filled up to the brim. Whether it was uh, Dancing with the Stars or Fred Astaire, I'm not sure what prompted the school there to really take this ballroom dancing thing on, but it's exciting that they're doing it, and it's creating both an awareness of physical activity and getting the kids more active. Parents uh, are certainly motivators to the policy change because, you know, we serve as representatives to school boards and to PTAs and other uh, community leadership groups that can pressure, if you will, the uh, schools to make changes and to restore physical fitness requirements. We've had a strong priority on academic achievement, and there's no question that that's an important part of of any student's expectation and parents' expectation of schools is to have their kids perform well academically. But we know that there's lots of research that shows that the kids who are more physically active and who get out there and move and are active in sports and athletics, that those kids typically do better academically. So there is some correlation between fitness uh, in the school and academic performance. So anything that providers and community medical professionals can do to influence parents and school groups to improve uh, physical fitness in schools is a great way to be a proactive community public health professional, if you will. So, Rear Admiral, as practitioners, we work daily with our patients to promote health and wellness. And one of the first questions we ask our patients is about their family health history. And it's alarming how many patients are not aware of their family history. The Surgeon General's Family Health History Initiative addresses this problem with My Family History Portrait. Tell us about this helpful tool. 
Oh, Lisa, this is really exciting, and there were some wonderful activities today that occurred with the launch of an updated version of My Family Health Portrait. As a regional health administrator, I've mentioned this Family Health Portrait to medical groups and community groups for a number of years now, and today there was some recent activity that updated this program. So I encourage everybody to go to the Surgeon General's website, surgeongeneral.gov, and take a chance and take a look at this particular initiative. What we're trying to do is promote awareness of your family health history. I actually went online today to the site. It was incredibly easy. I put in my entire family's health history today. My children, my mom and dad, my grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts and uncles that I know information, bits and pieces of their health information that that I've known over the years. I put that into this particular resource, this portal. What it produced for me was a really cool diagram. It's the typical genetic uh, family tree diagram that we use in clinical practice, but it showed my entire family. It indicated who was still with us and who had passed on. It indicated the, the clinical history that I was able to put in there. The neat thing about this resource is that anyone can go in and insert their own information, what they know, and they can save that information. It's personal information, as we know. We want to protect the privacy of that, so you can save it onto a thumb drive that you have command and control of. You can also save it into the Microsoft Health Vault, which is a non-governmental partner in this project. There's no governmental access to this information. It's controlled by the consumer, and it's maintained by the individual patient and consumer. Then you can elect who to share that information with. You can share it with your providers. You can share it with any third-party insurer that you wish to share with. It's really a neat application. I, for example, saved a copy of this that I'm going to send to my brother. It's my only brother, biologic brother, and I'm going to send that to my brother, and I'm going to say, here, use this when you go to your doctor because that will help my brother in his clinical encounters and in the doctors and and the providers that work with my brother. So it's a really exciting opportunity. I think all physicians, PAs, all healthcare providers should encourage their patients and clients to look at this site and to see how this application could be beneficial to them. It begins to create a picture for you of your own risk factors, and then you can talk with your providers about what you can do to cut down the risk of you becoming sick from one of these uh, family tendency-type diseases. The Family Health Portrait was available before, but the recent collaboration with the Microsoft Health Vault is allowing the expansion and access of this tool. Is that correct? Yes. We've had some really exciting examples of how the electronic medical record has been beneficial. I happen to be someone who spent a couple of months in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and veterans who were treated in VA facilities, veterans health facilities around the Gulf Coast, could be displaced or were displaced from the storms and went all over the country. And they could go into a VA clinic any place in the country and immediately have access to last x-rays, imaging studies, pharmaceuticals, clinical history. And it provided continuity of care in a way that really cuts down on adverse outcomes. Sometimes you fly by the seat of your pants in, in terms of your clinical prescribing. You have to do some research sometimes, but having an electronic medical record really cuts down the risk of bad outcomes or adverse events or pharmaceutical errors. And so this new health portrait is built on a platform that allows complete interoperability and integration into the emerging technologies that we have 
that our country's working on. Our department's made a huge investment. Our nation's made a huge investment in the electronic medical record. And so this portrait will allow for that seamless integration into these new technologies. Well, we thank you for your service, and we thank you, Rear Admiral Milner, for coming on our show. You're welcome, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to speaking with you and your audience again. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS-1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape uh, routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a uh, trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but are detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily undertake a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample. We determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-Igeronides. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com.